My guest this time on the podcast is Baz Worm. Baz is the current guitarist and vocalist of The Stranglers, having joined the band in, in the year 2000. Baz has been there almost 25 years and The Stranglers go out and tour the start of March, starting at the Clyde Auditorium in Glasgow um, for their 50th anniversary tour. Baz spoke all about joining the band as guitarist and then stepping up to bringing some of these iconic songs. We spoke about all this plus the, the upcoming tour and a whole lot more. Baz was a fantastic guest, really engaging. Hope you enjoy the episode. And as I've said previously, if you can like, share, subscribe, tell your pals, do whatever you need to do, get this podcast to the masses, get in touch with me on the socials or on my email. On the podcast today, I've got Baz Warm, um, the frontman of the Stranglers, um, which he has been for about twenty-four years, if I'm right. Um, the Stranglers are going on a fiftieth anniversary tour. The start in March, so we're here to kind of promote that. But we're going to get back to the start first. Um, what? What was life like for a young Baz Warren growing up? Where did you grow up? And what were your early paths into music, so to speak? I grew up in Sunderland, in the northeast of England. Um, and I started playing guitar when I was 10. Um, just had a colossal interest in it. I think it was watching early episodes of Top of the Pops with Status Quo and Free and all these great bands with guitars. Um, I uh, was more initially into, into rock music, the heavier side of rock music. So I was a big motorhead fan, ACDC, Rush, all that type of thing. Um but, you know, in the heyday or, or the, the initial rumblings of punk in this country, uh, in 1977, I was only 13, so I was a little bit young for all of that. But as I got older, um, it felt, it started filtering through and I realised that some of it was actually really quite good uh, and a lot of it was pretty crap, you know. Um, but mm -hmm. people were out there doing their own thing um, and that was what interested me. And, of course, when you see lads in the schoolyard carrying guitars around it's like where did you get that you know how do i get one type of thing so i got my first electric guitar when i was 13. Uh, my aunt bought it for me my, my aunt uh and i paid her back by delivering papers and milk as was the style of the day in the 1970s i was a paper boy and a milk boy and that's how i got my first guitar um there was a famous pub in the town called the old 29, which is long since gone. Mm -hmm. The irony of it is that they knocked it down and they built a law court on top of it. <laughs> yeah. And it was a real, real 
scuzzy pub. There was a lot of stuff went on in there. And I love the irony of that. Um, and I used to go there every Saturday lunchtime to watch bands, saw, band, saw hundreds of bands there. Underage, I used to stand at the back with a pal of mine who bought me off a lager and we would watch these bands. And it was just all part of the education, you know. Um, uh, and then when I was um, in my uh, late teens, I joined a, a punk band called the Toy Dolls. Um, Nelly the Elephant and all that bollocks, uh, yeah. and uh, I'll play bass with that with them for about 18 months. Uh, was lucky enough to tour the United States, uh, twice, um, lots of gigs around Europe, um, and that's what gave me the real impetus, if you like, uh, to do what I do now. Um, and what I it gave me the shove, and I realized that I could actually do it for a living. And to be honest with you, ever since that time, um, it was all I ever wanted to do. I mean, I've had jobs, you know, I've worked in, I worked in an office and like everybody else, you know, JJ Burnell drove a pin um, delivery van, um, you know, Dave Greenfield and Jed Black tuned pianos for a living. And did, did a, he was an off license, all kinds of different things. Um so I did my share of menial stuff, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Um, but in the back of my mind, it was always right. When can I get a guitar? You know, and you would build up your guitar, get a better one, sell it, get a better one, until I finally managed to get the dream guitar, which was a Fender Telecaster, and I got that when I was eighteen, and it was the one I auditioned for the Stranglers with, and uh, one of my prized possessions. So. Uh, in a, that's a potted, a potted history. There's lots went mm. on, um, but it was Sunderland was a good place to grow up in the in the uh, in the seventies and eighties. It was it was quite provincial. Um, you know, the jungle drums took a while for things to get up there pre-internet days. Uh, you know, punk was just a London thing for a long time, and then it started branching out as the press got a hold of it. Um, and then you'd you'd you know you'd you'd see bands like the Stranglers and uh, the Roots and uh, the Clash and they'd all start touring the the whole of the UK you know um, and mates from school would go and see stuff like that and then you'd just schoolyard you know like like a lot of people I mean I stayed on in the sixth form so I didn't leave school until I was gone sixteen. Um, with some vague attempt to appease my parents and be. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, gain, get gainful employment and and a handful of O levels and A levels, which I did get a few, but nothing major, you know. Um, and honestly, as soon as I played in a band, a good band, um, that was all I ever wanted to do. So, when you started playing in bands, then, and obviously, for the the time you started to the time you you joined the Stranglers. Um, how aware were you the Stranglers, and and were they were you a big fan? Um, I wasn't a big fan, but I was a fan. Uh, I had the first three albums. Um, I came to the Stranglers actually through the second album first. No more heroes. Somebody had it at a party I went to when I was a kid. And I loved it. I went back one and got Rattus. And then uh, literally the week that Black and White came out, I went down into the town and, and bought it. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the one thing that I did know about them um, was that they didn't sound like anybody else. Uh, and as you grow up and you decide you want to be in a band, you want to um, be as original as you can and have a blueprint all of your own and not sound like anybody else. And uh, and there's no one sounds like the Stranglers. Um, with that bass and that keyboard, um, it's instantly identifiable. And so I was aware of them because, you know, you heard them and it was like, even at that young age, you go, oh, that's the Stranglers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, never did get to see them, uh, the original lineup, although the, the Cape of Sunderland on the Raven tour, I believe in 1980 or wherever, whenever it was, I was supposed to go with some pals who did go, but I didn't. Can't remember why. Um, so the first time I actually ever saw the band was in uh, the Five Piece days with John Ellis and Paul Roberts in the early 1990s. And I thought they were really good. They were good. They sounded just like, you know, I mean, they had the drums, the bass and the keyboards. Uh, the guitar playing was was. He, he stuck pretty much to what Hugh Cornwell had been doing, and Paul Roberts was a great singer. Whether he was a Stranglers singer or not uh, is, remains a thing for people to discuss, but I thought they were really good, you know? Right. So when you joined, um, how much pressure is there on that? Obviously, jo- joining a, an iconic band and kind of you're taking on kind of Hugh Cornwell's role, so to speak. Um, how did the the fans take to you initially? Did you need to win them? Well, I was I was relatively lucky because when I joined, I only joined as a guitar player. Um, I was in the five piece Stranglers for six years, mm-hmm. so I stood at the side, played guitar, learned my craft, um, got uh, to know the rest of the lads, the politics behind the band, the stories. Um, we were pretty inseparable for those first six years. I mean, we did an awful lot of gigging and touring. Um, and uh, after about six, seven, maybe eight months, I just felt completely at home. Um, I was welcomed into the fold. They all became very fast friends. I think Jack Black was the one that latched onto me first. Me and him just seemed to really get on well. And I got on well with... Dave, although Dave was a lot quieter. Um, and then, of course, me and JJ, we've been together ever since. So, in fact, he's upstairs now somewhere. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, and I was taught, you know, I mean, uh, uh, my predecessor, without wishing, wishing to cast any aspersions on anybody, good guitar player, John Ellis, but uh, we would watch them. We toured with them twice uh, and we would watch them and... Um, he just wasn't faithful to the to the you know the classic solos that need to be played. I mean, everybody likes to stretch out, everybody likes to put their own stamp on things. I was told I would do whatever the fuck I wanted, as long as um, the the solo in Golden Brown sounds like the solo in Golden Brown, and and that uh, apparently the day I auditioned, there was a guy before me. And when they played Gordon Brown, he stood on a on a fuzz box and played like uh, like an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo to Gordon Brown. Everybody went, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, yeah. that's not, you know. So be respectful. Um, you know, play what is there, but don't 
stick to it 100% if you don't want to. And, and frankly, a lot of those guitar parts and solos that Hugh Cornwell crafted were perfect to start with. Um, I mean, he always played very economically and had a great knack of playing things um, that were actually easy to play, making them sound quite complex. And it wasn't until I picked the guitar up and started properly learning my parts that I realised how clever he was, you know. Um, uh, a lot of stuff that you just wouldn't ordinarily hear a guitarist play. So they were all inventive, all of them in their own way, and it stood out, you know, it really did. Right. Um, first, the first gig, am I, am I right in saying that the first gig you played with the band was in Kosovo? It was. I, I auditioned in London uh, on the 6th of April, 2000. Funny how you remember these things, isn't it? Um, and uh, 10 days later, we flew to uh, Skopje in Macedonia um, and we played for the Peacekeeping Forces. We played three shows, one in Porievo. That was the first gig I ever played. And then the second two, we played a big basketball arena in Pristina. And that was nuts. That was nuts, you know. Uh, during the same time, we we flew in helicopters and fired automatic weapons and drove tanks and lived with the British Army and various other armies. Um, and my first public gig was in Belgium, probably uh, in the summer of that year. Um, but it was great because I, I, I managed to get sort of baptised, if you like, off the beaten track because yeah. Stranglers fans Stranglers fans are extremely um, diligent and aware and, and also extremely critical. Um, and uh, I thought, right, well, if I can get to do a couple of gigs under the radar, so to speak, by the time we do a, a proper show, um, a public show, and of course... When the real, when the you know the word got out that the I mean the internet was very much in its infancy in those days, but there was you know tendrils of it snaking out everywhere, um, and the fans got wind of the new guitarist and the new gig, you know a gig with a new guitarist in Belgium, da 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 da. da. So there was a train of about two hundred of them came from Kings Cross or, or Saint Pancras or wherever it is, came from London to watch us play, and they were all standing at the side of the stage just giving me. You know, not daggers, but just staring, watching me every move, dissecting it. Oh yes, mm, I wouldn't have done that, but uh, but for the main, it was great. And and of course, as I say, I was able to stand uh, unmolested, if you like. Uh, I wasn't the centre of attention. I stood at the side and played guitar, stepped forward for backing vocals and guitar solos, and then stepped back into the shadows again. And it was great learning how to do that. You know. I enjoyed that. And then in 2006, when he left, um, Paul Roberts left, and we decided we'd keep it as a four-piece. Um, I won't pretend that it, it was seamless for me because I'm still predominantly, in my eyes, a guitarist first and foremost and then a singer. But I grew into it. Uh, took a good couple of years. By the time we toured in 2008, 2009, I think we had it down um mm -hmm. and it's been that been that way ever since you know so i mean that was one of my questions that did you feel the pressure but obviously as, as you said you had the time to kind of grow into it and yeah um, 
how did it like obviously how did it when you start came to start writing new albums like were you in the band how did the writing process come then well were you involved in that or was JJ I was I was yeah I mean at, at the time Paul Paul wrote JJ's always written and I and I have as well and uh, it was only about three months into my time in the band that I thought I better write something um I had a little really primitive um setup in the house I mean I'm I'm very fortunate enough to have a, a pretty much a full-size studio at home now but at the time I just had a little thing uh that I would get ideas down on so I wrote a song called Dutch Moon um uh, and I put it on four C30 cassette tapes mm-hmm. um took it out gave a one to each member of the band Jet was the first one to phone about uh, a week later I really like that song it's a really good song um, and I was just given sort of, you know, I mean, it was an exciting time. I was new blood in the band. Um, I'm significantly younger than everyone else was, is, uh, I'm from a entirely different part of the UK. Um, and so that kind of angle, uh, you know, me coming in with me fresh, cheeky Charlie Northern attitude, um, this just seemed to really embrace it. So I wrote, I ended up writing four songs for that album, one of which became a single called Long Black Veil, which I was very proud of. You know, my first sojourn in, in the recording with the Stranglers was a, was a great success. And that album, in actual fact, thanks to the mostly the title track, which was JJ wrote, um, it powered us back up into um, a good touring place. And in that, in 2004, when that record came out, we did so. We went all over the world, you know. Uh, we did a lot of shows. Um, and just continually, slowly started to build it from there, you know. So the song, the songwriting was never a problem. There's, there's so many ideas. Um, eventually, JJ and I probably will sit down Probably not this year because there's so many gigs to do. But we'll sit down um, with a couple of bottles of wine and a couple of acoustic guitars and we'll start bashing songs across the, the table to, to each other and saying what sticks. You know, that's the way we've traditionally done it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you've got a fully formed idea with all the parts and everything, but that doesn't really work with the Stranglers. Everybody likes to be, likes to have their own uh, input, you know, and contribution. So... Um, when the time comes, we'll see. There's lots. There's there's lots of ideas. I mean, there's no there's no shortage of things to write about in this fucked up world that we're living in at the moment. You know, yeah. There's always something to write about. Do, Am I allowed to swear? By the way, am I swearing? Yeah, Lassen. It, it's it's um, applauded on my podcast. About oh, swing. is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good. So. Like touching on that, obviously, we're coming up to 50 years of the Stranglers, so longevity's been key to the the the, the path that you have trodden. Um, obviously, were you been the youngest in the band when the time comes when JJ can't go in anymore? What what will happen then? Will do you think you would continue or do you no. think once JJ goes, that's it? 
No, yeah, it's it's I could I couldn't. I know that a lot of people expected it would, and a lot of people, but uh, and I've got friends. I mean, I have to be careful what I say here because I actually I've got friends who were in bands like this where there's no original members anymore, mm-hmm. um, and I, that doesn't sit well with me. I've I've had this conversation with quite a few people. Um, and it's usually pretty split. A lot of people say, well, it's like a football team. You know, you just change the person. And I don't see it like that. I mean, trying to replace Dave Greenfield, God rest his soul, was hard enough. Um, how fortunate we got there and how quickly that happened is something that JJ and I still can't get over. Finding Toby Houncham, um, mm-hmm. was a, but But if... JJ Burnell goes, which is, you know, he's he's I mean, now he is the he is the 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 last man standing from from those old golden days, as people would have it. Um I don't see the point. Uh, I could, to be honest with you, in all in all consciousness, in all fair con you know, to me to to the fans as well, I don't think anybody would be interested in coming to see a band with no original members in, even though I've been there a long time. I don't know. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. If it if it gets to it and he's lying on his deathbed with his mask and he opens it and he goes, keep the keep the fires burning, Baz. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if it comes from him, then but ah, nah, I can't. I can't see it, Martin. I can't see it. No, I am. So, I'm sure you agree. Actually, no. Well, that's exactly that. They have fans, wouldn't they stand for it? I wouldn't they think. No, they wouldn't. Obviously, he's have picked up um, lots of fans over the years, but I'd imagine the, the majority of the fan base would be the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the real diehard fans still have trouble with this with me, and I've been there for, you know, next to Jet, Dave, and JJ. I'm the next longest serving member. You know, um, so uh, nah, well, well, I'm, I'm almost certain I, I couldn't. It just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't. It, it wouldn't be right on so many levels, you know. So this um, 50th anniversary tour coming up um, kicks off in Glasgow, starting March. Um, yep. Thirteen dates, I think he's doing finishing off at the yep. Albert Hall in London. Yeah. Um, so how do you? Is it easy to pick a set list for for a tour like this? Is it? <laughs> Well, it's never been easy to pick a set list, but this has to rank as one of the hardest ones because we're culling from or we're pulling in stuff from uh, a 50-year career over 18 albums. So um, I think traditionally, as we've always done, well, certainly in my time in the band, JJ and I would usually pick the set list and that would start for a March tour that would start probably in about October uh, where would there'd be emails and phone calls with suggestions we'd whittle it down make a list of about 35 maybe 40 tunes email them to Dave email them to Jet uh, and Dave now uh, and uh, Jim and Toby now as it is uh, so everybody's got a rough idea of what they're doing. And then we come in and we start to piece it together. Um, we rehearsed in October. We rehearsed in November. We didn't rehearse last month um, for various reasons. And we've got a long rehearsal window 
this this month, which is actually where I am now. I've been here all week and we're here for another week to rehearse. Uh, then we've got a week in February. Then we'll go home and recharge our batteries. Uh, and then there's a couple of days pre-production to do. And then the first show, as you say, in Glasgow. Um, and after maybe a couple of gigs, we'll sit down and assess, is that working? Is this song working? Is that in the right place? It has to flow. There has to be a rhythm. Yeah. There, has to be a, there has to be a rhyme to it. Um, and we've always prided ourselves on doing that. So uh, once the first couple of gigs are under under our belts, then we're happy with the set and we just sort of, I won't say we go on autopilot because you never do, you know. Um but you're more comfortable. You know what you've got to do then. Uh, the first couple of gigs, I won't say they're fraught. They're not fraught, but they're always, you're always on a little bit of, you know, cutting a hot tin roof kind of thing, sort of making sure that everything's right and getting rid of those, ironing the wrinkles out and getting rid of your nerves, you know. Um, it's always the same on a tour. This one especially is going to be different because... We're doing two sets on this one. There's no support act or special guests. They'll just be us. Um, a first half, which will comprise of a lot of weird, obscure stuff that the real diehards will wet their mm -hmm. panties over, I would have thought. Um, second half, there's a bit of that as well, but obviously we'll, we'll throw uh, some more, much more. I mean, you know, you've, you've got to remember that in Clyde Auditorium, for example, I mean, there's 3,000 people, I think. 500 of them will be mad stranglers diehards. And the rest are just public that want to hear Golden Brown and No More Heroes and all these different things. So you've got to cater for everyone. And on top of all of that, you've got to make sure you're happy in yourself because it's, although there is a certain element of nostalgia, it would, of course there is, it's, a, it's a, an anniversary tour. Um, we still like to keep things fresh and we still like to think that we're relevant and have something to say, you know? So it's never it's never done on autopilot. We never go through the motions. Every show is could be your last and treat it like your first, you know? That's the way we've always looked at it. Looking at the the venues that you that you're playing on, that's obviously like the Clyde Auditorium's stuck it to me. Um is this a case of because you're an older band, you're playing a venue like this? Because when I seen the tour, I just expected it to be the Barrowlands. Yeah, well, I mean, basically we've picked um, seat of venues because of the uh, the different show that we're attempting to, uh, to uh, perform. Um, the first half, is I mean I don't think all the venues are seated, but uh, we just wanted we literally just wanted to do something different. Barrowlands would have been great, um, and I did, and I think we did investigate it, and I just don't know if the if the, the availability of it was there or not. I can't really remember if I'm honest, um, but it's just nice to play. I mean, I'm personally speaking, I've never played the Usher Hall in Edinburgh. Um, which I know is kind of Scotland's answer to the Royal Albert Hall. So, you know, there's all these little, still little milestones to uh, achieve from a personal point of view. Um, uh, it, it's, it, it is going to be a little bit weird coming out and people sitting down, but, I mean, we'll we'll encourage everybody to stand up and I'm sure it'll kick off. I mean, I used to, when I was a kid, my local gig was the 
City Hall in Newcastle, and it was always uh, a seated venue. Um, but I mean, I saw ACDC, Motorhead, Scorpions, all kinds of bands there, and it never seemed to bother people, you know. Um, there'll always be somebody that'll complain about something, Martin. That's just the nature of the human beast. I mean, we've had people saying, Oh, you're touring, you're cashing in, you said you'd never tour again. What, what's all that about? And then there's a, the very same people, if we didn't tour, yeah, would go, Why the fuck are you not touring? You know what I mean? So you cannot win with a lot of cases. The point is, is that it's 50th anniversary. We never said that we wouldn't tour again. Um, that's been confused. We just said we wouldn't do big, major tours. So to those ends, this is half the amount of shows in bigger venues, which is makes sense every, you know, economically and everything. I mean, all right, there's a few people that complain we're not going to Wales, um, you know, Cardiff and that, but people will always complain. You know, you yeah. do a forty-five, do a forty-five to European uh, British tour encompassing every town and major rock and roll hub you can think of and people will still whinge that's just the way that people are you know yeah i mean this is the same for every band all these up and coming bands as well and you see i feel really sorry for them see when you see a band announce a tour and people on facebook saying why are you not playing this place why are you not doing this and you kind of think they've they've spent the time to plan this tour and to put it and it, it takes a lot of time to plan a tour and then, well, it, uh, you see, advertise it, and then people are just slagging it off because they're not coming to their, their town um, or whatever. You see, people are under the misapprehension, and I've, ex- and I've said this a lot, people are under the misapprehension that the band actually picks where they want to go. Yeah. You know, we don't sit with a map and stick pins in it and go, right, I want to go there, 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 there. It's all about the availability of the venue and whether or not you've been invited. You know, um, I think for a band like us, we can make decisions as to where we'd like to play, but it's still 80% of it's out of our hands. The the main thing that we, um, you know, in terms of gigs and, and stuff like that, if something comes in that we really don't want to do, no, we don't want to, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, that, uh, off, off the top of my head, I can't even think of an occasion when that happened, but... Um, People think that we pick where we want to go. I've had loads of people. Why aren't you coming here? Do you not like it here or something? And you go, well, it's got that's got nothing to do with it. The venue's not available when we want to be there. Um, you know, X, Y, and Z. It, it's all got to make sense uh, logistically and economically. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, um, this tour. You play all right, you know. People are expected to travel, but I mean, we've got to travel as well. You know, we have to travel to all these different places. It's not like we can. People are whinge about traveling and stuff, but then a lot of people don't. You know, they just they just turn up because they're just very happy to see you. Um, and as you rightly say, Martin, there's a lot of. Nerdwells in every band's following people that are just not happy. They're just yeah. not. They're, they're never happy unless they're fucking grousing about something. You know, that's just the nature of people. The thing is, I used to be inwardly like that, um, and it's only in the last couple of years that I kind of think a couple of years ago I went to a gig in Edinburgh because I mean I'm like. 
20 minutes for Glasgow, so I've always went to Glasgow. And there was one mm-hmm. time I couldn't get to a Glasgow gig, I thought I'd go to Edinburgh. And see, once I realised how easy it was to get to Edinburgh, I thought, right, well, that's what I can do then. I can go, I can rotate between the two. And it, yeah. it kind of opens your... It opens your avenues because sometimes I like I like to go to gigs at the weekend. So sometimes a band might not be playing Glasgow when I want. I can go and see them in Edinburgh. So yeah, um, if you really want to see a band, you will travel. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, especially after all these years, people people would realise that. And I and I sound I, I feel like I'm I'm having a real go at people. I'm not really. I mean, it's only a very small minority in the grand scheme of things. But you know, it's some of the excuses that you get from them. You think, "Oh, really, <laughs> really?" You know, how old are you? Sorry, you're sixty, aren't you? You're not sixteen. I just, you know, really. Um, but as we all know, there are people in life who are eternal optimists, and conversely, there are eternal pessimists, and that's just the way it is, you know. Mm. So, um, I hope I hope that still goes well. I I, I know it. Thank well. you. Um, Obviously, looking at your tour dates after that, it looks like you've got some kind of festival dates as well coming up. Yep, uh, it's going to be a busy. I mean, as as you know, as it is now, it's only the middle of January, so uh, we expect a lot of things to be um, firmed up in the coming sort of six weeks. To end of February, beginning of March is generally when the rest of the year starts to make more sense, um, but. For now, we've got the UK tour. There's a lot of festivals. Um, we didn't play the UK at all last year, specifically for that reason, for this reason. Um, the last time we played was 22, so people will be looking, you know, forward to that. And then we've got quite a few UK festivals as well, as well as some European ones. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having a rare sojourn across to the United States in May to do a festival in. California, uh, which yeah, is not something that, that kind of yeah, we, don't, yeah. we don't do. We don't go to America very often, so um, it's going to be interesting to go over there uh, for a while. I've got some friends over there I need to see and different things. And then later on in the year, um, there's European stuff being lined up, I know, for October and November. So when that's firmed up and everything, it'll be announced in due course, and hopefully there'll be a lot more to fill the Europe as well. So it's probably those reasons why we're not going to probably do much recording this year because there's just a lot of shows to do, you know. And of course, the order you get more it takes it out of you. you yeah, know? yeah, it sounds like a busy year though. Um, yeah. So, I absolute pleasure having you on the day, taking the time. To you too. The nice to talk to you. Um, obviously, the the last bit that I I say to you about the start. Um, four heroes to come for dinner. Why are your heroes, and what what would you cook them? <laughs> so you know I wish somebody had told me about this yesterday and I could have had more of a thought about it instead of 20 minutes ago um, Oliver Hardy mm-hmm. because I grew up with Laurel and Hardy and I always found him to be the one that I watched the most um, I'd probably cook him a whole leg of lamb because he looks like he could probably eat it <laughs> Um I love, I love him. He's such a funny, such a funny man. Um, David Attenborough, right? Uh, just, 
King Dave, as we like to call him, myself and my wife, uh, who's Scots, incidentally. Right. My wife's a Scots, so that's how I can understand you so good, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> cheeky bastard, eh? <laughs> um, we watch a lot of uh, Attenborough, everything. Um, and I would probably make him uh, something vegan or vegetable. I don't know if he is a vegetarian, but I don't get the impression that he eats much meat. I don't know. I could be wrong. Uh, so my wife's a vegan, so she could. She, I'm sure she'd make something nice for him. Um, um, oh, when I was growing up, um, I was a very keen. Well, I still am a very keen Sunderland Association football club supporter for my sins. Uh, and my hero in the seventies was a guy called Dennis Stewart, right? Who went on to play for Man City and. New York Cosmos, and he played for England, and uh, this, that, and the other. And I just adored Dennis Stewart. He was my, he was number eleven, same as me, and when I was a kid. Um, so I would have him. I have met, I have met Dennis before, actually, uh, and he's a, he's a fairly slight guy. So I think I'd cook him something light, you know, something light, like a nice light omelette or something. What was he? Was, um, he, a, was he a striker or a winger? Um, he was um, an outside left, but he was. It was the first time in my lifetime that a, a, a an outside left, but he was naturally right-footed. Right. So they played him out on the left, and he cut in a lot. I mean, he was both feet, but he was naturally right-footed. And so I'd never heard of somebody playing on the left with a right foot. I mean, I was only a kid, you know. You look at that, it's, it's, that's, it's, 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 it's common. I, I mean, everybody does it, but back in the day in the 70s, um, you know, I remember somebody saying about his natural sweet right foot, and I thought, well, hang on a minute, he's, he plays on the left. And then my dad, you know, God rest his soul, he said to him, no, 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 no. He says he cuts inside. He cuts inside. You know? <laughs> so um, that was, uh, <laughs> I loved him. I loved him. And I was gutted when he went to uh, Man City. But there you go. Um, the last one. Oh, God, who could... Who could it be? I mean, it's it's this this so many, there's so many. Um, uh, okay, I'll say I'll just for daft, just for, I'll say uh, Victoria Wood, um, who's an incredibly funny woman. Uh, that's uh, I know that's probably <laughs> that's, and I don't know what I'd cook for her. Um, maybe a. Uh, uh, Steak pie, you know, she looked like a kind of a steak pie sort of <laughs> steak pie sort of lassie. But she was incredibly funny, and we spent a lot of Saturday nights at home because because my parents were big fans of her, so we'd watch it. You know, you see, uh, I'm sure when I'm sure when we say goodbye here, Martin, I'll think of another ten immediately. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, but, see, uh, you see how she gets on all these like top top fifty comedians or whatever. She's always kind of up there. Yeah, very, yeah. very, very. Her, or maybe or Julie Walters, you know, um, very original, um, uh, inspirational British actresses and comedians, uh, just fantastic. Victoria Wood was a great songwriter as well, and very funny. So yeah, and again, taken way too, uh, too soon, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, I hope that. I hope that's comprehensive enough for you. Uh, top of my head. Thinking. Yeah, good choices. A couple of them haven't been picked before, so it's always nice to have new ones. Um, David Attenborough, obviously. What, what do you... 
David Attenborough seems to he's probably moving around longer than the Stranglers. Um, <laughs> it keeps on going. Who do ah, you, he's one of the rare ones. <laughs> do, do you see any as a natural successor to him? Because surely he can't go in forever. Somebody else has no, to. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of great naturalists and uh, you know ecologists and. Um, I, I mean, no. The thing is, when you when you see, I mean, a, a perfect example. If you're sitting with uh, an hour to kill, and you don't really know what to do, and you're not really engaging with anything really, and you've got a cup of tea or a glass of wine or something, and you think, "Oh, am I going to kill an hour?" If you put the telly on and you see that Attenborough's on there, you just watch it. It's you know, voice in it as well. He's yeah, it's, it's his knowledge. It's his knowledge, and he's and he's gentle English way and the fact that if you look at some of the original footage of him from the 1950s I mean he was going to Galapagos in the 50s when it took a week and a half to get there you know and all this ridiculous um, and black and white footage younger than you and I by quite a stretch you know and he's still doing it and then you know you look at all those ones like the Blue Planet and uh, Life of Birds and all those amazing um, documentaries with groundbreaking technology. And, of course, if somebody says that Attenborough is at the helm of it, he wants to do this, then people take notice. And so the programmes are always impeccable. The only thing I would say, well, and again, it's not a criticism, is that as he gets older... He always seems to finish his programs off now with, uh, with the, um, you know, the planet. We need to do more and uh, make people aware and all this type of thing, which is always very interesting. <laughs> what I mean? Say hello to Martin. Hi, Martin. Hey, yeah. Uh, Where are you calling from? Hey, Glasgow. Hey, hey, right. <laughs> are you are you East Kilbride? Eh, uh, well. I'm Motherwell, really, outside. Okay, Mother, okay. Motherwell, so they're a football team. Two, two seconds. Are you not going? Yeah. Are you not going? Are you staying there? Are you going? Right. 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 yeah, I mean, he, he he tends to sign off a lot of his shows now with look after the planet. And I guess when you've been traversing the planet as long as he has and seeing the changes that he's seeing, um, you know, he's just a wonderful human being. And me and my wife were just saying just the other day, when he goes, because he's in his 90s now, isn't he, as you rightly yeah. say. So uh, I honestly don't know. Um, I would have loved to have met Oliver Hardy because... Uh, as I said, I was a huge fan. And when we were in, the last time we were in the States in LA uh, in 2019, I think it was, we went to the steps in Silver Lake in Los Angeles where they schlepped that piano up and down the steps. Uh, the famous film, The Music Box from the 1930s, those steps are actually still there. So, And I was like a schoolboy. I really was. I couldn't believe it. I took a video and texted it and sent it to all my brothers. You know, look at this. Look where I am. Fucking hell, fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and I can't even remember. I can't even remember who I said the other ones were. Yeah, Victoria Wood and um, your footballer, Dave. Was it Dave? Dennis Chewer. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. I always like a footballer getting picked as well. It's nice. 
Um, but I, I'll not keep you any longer. Obviously, no, you, the, it's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. No worries, not a problem at all. It's nice to talk to you. My, like I say, my wife is Scots, and her family's from East Kilbride. It's just when you said you were close to Glasgow, I thought you know. Um, yeah, so my mother works over. It's probably about the same, kind of. Probably about about ten minutes for East Kilbride. Aye, are you a Motherwell supporter? No, Glasgow Celtic. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, so you've obviously, uh, you're obviously very um, in tune with the uh, the huge rivalries up there. I mean, I won't come, you know, I know the Celtic Rangers things a whole different ball of wax, but the Sunderland Newcastle one is always uh, something to behold. In the last, I mean, they battered us out of the FA Cup um, a couple of weeks ago. As much as I hate to say it, um, they were really good and they just played us off the park. We didn't have a sniff. Um, oh, but you know, it's been spent there, though, hasn't there? I, I know. Well, on paper, they're supposed to be the richest team in the world, aren't they? Um, yeah. Uh, they needed to win a, a local derby because we won the last six. So, you know. Um, you think the, your local derby seem to be bigger, I think, because, because you don't play each other as often. Yeah. Um, I've seen Especially the, something like the third round there. of the FA Yeah, third yeah. round of the FA Cup. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Yeah. You know, it was freezing cold. It was lashing down with rain. I mean, it was proper, proper FA Cup weather. Um, and as Sunderland versus Newcastle, there was 50,000 there. Um, they, they let the one entire bottom section of one end out the Newcastle supporters, so there was 6,000 turned up. Uh, the chairman, who's a young French kid, you might have seen this in the news, made a serious error of judgment by um allocating the bar, one of the bars at the ground, to the Newcastle United board, and blah blah blah. So everything was black and white. There was fucking hell on, there was hell on. Um, <laughs> He then came out, give him his due, because he's French and he's only 27 or 28. He doesn't understand. I mean, he doesn't understand what it means to be. You cannot do that, yeah. you know. By all means, extend a friendly handshake. By all means, accommodate the fans. By all means, make it an occasion. By all means, police it and, and you know, get security right and so that everybody can have a good time. But don't, like, you know, fucking... Good people. Um, anyway, anyway. So it's ancient history now. It's all over now. We and don't even have fans on. We we've no had um, away fans for the last two years. Oh, but, um, they cut our allocation. We used to get like eight thousand. Used to be uh, eight thousand. We'd go to Ibrox, and then they cut it to eight hundred, and it became unsafe. Because uh, you were in a wee corner with fans above you, and you were you were getting pelted with hands. So <laughs> Celtic just says, "Look, we'll not take, we'll 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 no go," and well, they're no coming to us. So it's I, been at the last two years. Right. Well, at one point, the Sunderland Newcastle ones, um, they didn't let Sunderland fans go to Newcastle, and then they wouldn't let Sun uh, Newcastle fans come to Sunderland, and then they decided that that wasn't right. So they played a couple of them entirely behind closed doors, like in lockdown with no crowd. Sunderland played Newcastle at St James's Park with no people there mm -hmm. um, because they were trying to make a point, you know. Um, so much violence and so much... I mean, it seems to be 
getting better now. People won't stand for it. And of course, with security and mobile phones, somebody starts setting on somebody, you just whip your phone out and film it and send it to the police and people are caught. And, you know, I mean, so... Anyway, anyway, mate, that's yeah. that's, yeah, that's a message there for Jenny. Tell me I have to I have to wrap it up. So <laughs> okay, she's but great, Jenny. Absolute pleasure on. having you on, and all the best for the tour. Pleasure to talk to you, Martin. You take care of yourself. Thanks again, well, mate. mate. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on. The Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others, and more importantly, enjoy. Yeah.